This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives of lesser-known Victorian writers. And I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. Hey guys, today we're going to talk about Wilkie Collins. Although he's gotten pretty well recognized in scholarly circles, many of my friends and acquaintances haven't really heard of him yet, so he kind of marginally falls under the category of lesser known. Okay, so let's give Wilkie Collins a historical context. In 1824, George IV is four years into his 10-year reign, having succeeded his mentally unstable father, George III, in 1820. Also in that year, James Monroe is in the penultimate year of his presidency. He's the fifth president of the United States. Twelve-year-old Charles Dickens begins to work in a London blacking factory due to family financial troubles on February 9th of 1824. His father is put in Marshalsea Debtors Prison on February 23rd. Lord Byron dies on April 19th. Beethoven's final complete symphony, Symphony No. 9, premieres on May 7th. Noah Cushing patents a washing machine on June 8th, becoming the first Canadian to file a patent. Mexico becomes a republic on October 4th. Also in that year, Joseph Fourier discovers greenhouse effect. Stonewall Jackson is born. Sir Walter Scott publishes The Red Gauntlet. James Hogg publishes The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. And finally, on January 8th, 1824, in London, William Wilkie Collins is born. He's named after his father, his godfather, Sir David Wilkie, and would, for most of his life, be known simply as Wilkie. His parents are William Collins and Harriet Collins, uh, formerly Harriet Geddes. And I'll just give you a background on both of them before we talk about Wilkie's childhood and later life. William Collins comes from a family that is English, but emigrated to Ireland after William III took the throne at the end of the 1600s. William is a name that runs in the family, so I'll try to keep this less confusing by referring to Wilkie Collins' grandfather as Grandpa William, his father as William Sr., and Wilkie himself as Wilkie or Collins. Grandpa William was born a poor kid from County Wicklow, Ireland. He met and married his wife, whose name we don't know, though we do know she died in 1833, in Edinburgh, and cobbled together a living as a writing-slash-art dealer. He wrote an It narrative that did really well, titled Memoirs of a Picture, which was published in 1805. The It narrative, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is a type of novel that was really popular in the late 18th and early 19th centuries and had an object, usually an art object, as a main character or protagonist. So the, the novel would follow the adventures of this object as it worked its way through the world by various means. Grandpa William had two sons, William Sr., Wilkie's father, who was born in 1788, and Francis, who is usually known as Frank, in 1790. William Sr., Wilkie's father, trained at the Royal Academy of Painters and became a fairly respected landscape painter in his lifetime. I'll put a link to some of his artwork in my show notes, but my favorites are titled Children Playing with Puppies and English Cottage Scene. I really love the wobbly fence in that one. Harriet Collins, her life story sounds something like something out of a Jane Austen novel. 
She's the daughter of an army officer in a downwardly mobile family. But the family, even though they were struggling through financial trouble, was considered socially acceptable enough, I guess, to associate with the rural gentry. Harriet's the eldest of six children, and she was born in 1790. She grew up in Alderbury, a village which is six miles outside of Salisbury, and went to a lot of provincial balls, which sounds like something she did not enjoy. She did like the theater, though. She was a bit of a scribbler herself, writing but never publishing a thinly fictionalized memoir. The Gettys family rented a cottage from the Earl of Radnor, who helped put one of Harriet's sisters through art school. Harriet herself either wanted to become an actress or thought that career was her best option since she needed to help her family financially. Sources vary on that. Either way, her mother discouraged her, and she was further, quote, saved from this fate by a nice old evangelical clergyman and his wife. So a word on the career of actress. In the 19th century, it was considered akin to prostitution. Uh, and so if you became an actress, that was basically the end of your life um, and your social reputation. So waylaid by or are convinced not to pursue this career by her mother and the clergyman and his wife, she instead trains to become a governess. This is how she meets William Collins, or William Sr. as we call him, her future husband. In 1814, she travels to London to stay with her sister before undergoing her training. The sisters go to a ball, and the artistically inclined Collins, who runs in the same circles as Harriet's little sister Margaret, is at this ball. He invites her to meet his mother and brother, but that seems to have been the end of their brief initial flirtation, attraction at this time, in part because William Sr. had inherited his father's rather substantial debts when his father died, and he was too poor to consider marrying at this time. In fact, eight years go by. Then the two meet again, by chance in 1822, also at a ball. Um, Harriet teaches William Sr. how to dance a quadrille, and I think I'm saying that right. I neglected to look up the pronunciation unfortunately. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. Harriet apparently wrote about being separated from her chaperone and a suitor that night, fondly remembering, quote, I soon found my hand in his, William Sr.'s, and when I gently tried to withdraw it, a whisper asked me to let him retain it. From that time, I knew nothing of Matthew's. In vain he sang, danced, changed into seven people at once, etc., etc. I was as one blind and deaf to all but one. Wilkie himself comes on the scene two years later. He was the oldest of two children. His younger brother, Charles Alston Collins, was born four years after him in 1828. Wilkie was born with a bulge on the right side of his forehead and was disproportionate throughout his life. His head and shoulders were large compared to the rest of his body, and his hands and feet were noticeably small. He was very self-conscious about this throughout his life, and I think it comes through in some of his characters, but we'll get to that later. He was also short-sighted and not very athletic. The family itself was well off, and Wilkie wrote that, quote, no one could have had the happiness of possessing kinder or more indulgent parrots than myself. But William Sr. traveled quite a lot, and family life consisted mostly of Harriet and the boys, which may in fact be why Wilkie remembers it so fondly. Because while Wilkie respected his father, he was really kind of a mama's boy, and he didn't get along with his father as well, because Wil uh, William Sr. was a bit of a snob and very formal and pretty strict. Wilkie, on the other hand, disliked formality. As an adult, he insisted on being called Wilkie instead of Collins or Mr. Collins, for example. And he also balked at traditionalism and institutional things like marriage. But we'll get to that later. 
The family was also very religious, stemming perhaps from his mother's early conversion to evangelicalism. And I've got a link in the show notes that explains evangelicalism at more length and its connections to something called Malthusianism, which is a fiscally conservative form of economics. But evangelicalism really privileged the reading of the Bible and introspection and that kind of a thing. Yeah. Anyway, so Wilkie's father also imposed his conservative values on their family life, although we don't get a lot of information about how much he imposed it. We just know from some of uh, Wilkie's later letters and his attitudes about certain things that it was something he was deeply uncomfortable with. Little Wilkie remembered when he was eight years old um, some events surrounding the passing of the 1832 Reform Act, which the working classes had hoped would extend suffrage to them, but which failed to do so. It took a lot of years and a lot of demonstrations before anything even approaching voting equality occurred in England. And so at this time, there was a lot of social unrest, although the British don't really rebel like other countries, namely France or the US. So there was a lot of peaceful protesting, or mostly peaceful protesting. So folks kept their lights on in support of the movement, and those who failed to do so got their windows broken. Little Wilkie was delighted by seeing the glittering streets at night, while his father merely complied by turning his lights on to avoid having to replace expensive glass. Little Wilkie also remembered seeing mass demonstrations in Hyde Park, which foreshadowed and set the stage for the Chartist movement of the later 1830s and 1840s. And this was a much more organized and robust social movement that worked for, among other things, working class suffrage. Little Wilkie was, as one might expect given my earlier description of his physique, a bit of a bookworm. He devoured his mother's collection of books, including gothic novels like Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho, as well as Shakespeare, an assortment of 18th century and romantic poets and philosophers, and of course, the novels of Walter Scott. Even though he loved reading, he wasn't sent to school until he was 11 years old. In January of 1835, he was sent to Maida Hill Academy, but his time there was mercifully short. He did win first prize in his first year, though, which came with two volumes of Southey's essays. In September of 1836, his father took a painting trip to Paris, Nice, Florence, Rome, Naples, and Venice. He took his family with him, and so Wilkie was abroad from ages 12 to 14, informally learning as he traveled. He was, in essence, a homeschooler. Remember, his mother was trained as a governess. Wilkie, by all accounts, loved his time abroad, but it sounds like the family itself had a pretty rough time of it, suffering various illnesses and injuries. Harriet, Wilkie's mother, had her own private war with a laundress who charged more than Paris prices, for instance. As they traveled, they had to plan around terrifying cholera outbreaks in France. In fact, they were traveling smack in the middle of the Asiatic cholera pandemic, of 1829 to 1851. It would be another 18 years until the bacteria that causes cholera would be isolated, and another 29 years after that until the findings were published. In fact, this was still a pre-germ theory world. Pre-Louis Pasteur and the Victorians during this time prescribed to a miasma theory of disease, which held that bad airs, bad smells, and fogs and mists were responsible for the spread of illness. Toward the end of the trip, the heat and the exhaustion of moving from place to place seemed to be getting to the family. Wilkie, in particular, had had enough. 
He apparently began to act out and throw tantrums, which I think is strange for a 14-year-old, but a worn-out kid is a worn-out kid in any century. Charlie got pushed off a wall by a mischievous playmate and broke his arm, capping off the trip with misery and pain. Harriet writes that, quote, many months of this past year have passed in much anxiety and fatigue. William Sr. associated with some remarkably famous people considering that he was never really esteemed for his painting. So during his childhood, Wilkie met Coleridge and Wordsworth, among others. And in one of Coleridge's many visits to the family, he confessed to his opium addiction and bemoaned it bitterly, actually breaking down in tears. Wilkie was listening in, and he overheard his mother say, Quote, Mr. Coleridge, do not cry. If the opium really does you any good and you must have it, why do you not go and get it? This comment would profoundly affect Collins in later life. None of the Collins men were in particularly good health during their lives. Uh, William Sr. suffered from rheumatism and or gout, it's kind of unclear. Um, probably both. And Wilkie would also suffer from what he called a gout of the eyes occasionally as a child and then more and more frequently during his adulthood. Uh, experts think that it, it likely could have been gout, which can attack different parts of your imu immune system, but is also quite possibly hereditary rheumatoid arthritis. So having been ill himself and watching his father be ill, it seems like little Wilkie was very protective of his younger brother, who is the sickly one of the family, even though all three of them were somehow. So everyone protected little Charlie and tried to make sure that he never got sick. Young Wilkie's propensity for storytelling really began to emerge after his trip abroad, um, when he claims to have fallen in love with and seduced an older married woman, which experts think was probably a frequent visitor to his mother named Anne Linnell, but he was only 12 at the time, so who knows if the story is true or not. But apparently, according to Collins biographer Yvonne Walzigen, Wilkie was so jealous of this other woman's husband that he couldn't stand to be around him and would run away whenever he saw him. Personally, I think if Wilkie did have a crush on this woman, and heck, if by chance he managed to seduce her, he was more likely to run away out of fear of a much larger, older man than out of some bizarre dislike. I mean, he was 12, right? Anyway, upon the family's return to England, Wilkie was sent to boarding school at 39 Highbury Place, and this school was run by the Reverend Henry Cole. Wilkie would attend this school for three years. He didn't much like school. If you didn't already pick that up based on his one year of earlier school experience, he claimed traveling was much more beneficial to him than school ever could be, saying that he learned more, quote, among the scenery, the pictures, and the people than I ever learned at school. His boarding school set out to educate boys with a, quote, plan of instruction which embraces the Greek and Latin classics, English, to which particular attention is paid both in the reading of authors and composition, French, history, the mathematics, use of the globes, geography, and writing, and etc. Sounds pretty normal. Basic schoolboy education in England in the 19th century. But apparently the Reverend Henry Cole was a biblical fundamentalist who opposed modern scientific thought. That, plus the fact that the school's whole pedagogy, or theory on how learning should happen, was something called rote learning. 
which meant that students were expected to memorize and recite long passages from their various subjects, and that this constituted their, quote, learning. As an educator, I can tell you right now that memorization is not, and never will, be equal to understanding. This school also really reminds me of Bronte's Lowood Institution in Jane Eyre, except that the boys appear to have been well-fed and fairly happy, and the Reverend, while possessing some flawed ways of thinking about science, did not seem to have been as fundamentally corrupt as Mr. Brocklehurst. Wilkie Collins was not a great student. He was often punished for laziness and inattention, and it sounds to me like Wilkie Collins was a daydreamer. Whatever the case, it's really during this time at boarding school that he starts to seriously develop his storytelling chops, and this is unfortunately because he's severely bullied by an older boy. Uh, this older boy forced Wilkie to tell stories to pass the hours before bedtime every night, or almost every night. He writes that the older boy wouldn't let him go to sleep until he'd told a story and admits, quote, it is a fact that it was this brute who first awakened in me, his poor little victim, a power of which, but for him, I might never have been aware. Apparently, though, if Wilkie failed to tell an entertaining enough tale or to tell anything at all, the older boy whipped him with an improvised cat a nine tails. Apart from the bullying, it sounds like Wilkie's time at boarding school was... Uh, could be easily characterized as mischievous. Wilkie Collins kind of have, had a reputation as a bad boy. He got into lots of scrapes, he was a bit of a show-off, and he would recite bits of Voltaire in French, which led the other boys to give him a nickname, the French Frog. In fact, he was pretty pretentious, and wrote letters to his mother in Italian just because he could. But he was also very sweet and affectionate in his letters to his mother, and I always remember to thank her for the little care packages she sent. It seems like he just had a hard time getting along with the other kids, and that no matter what he did, it was somehow wrong. If he tried to apply himself in his studies, his friends thought he was too much of a nerd and too much of a snob. If he was a bad boy, they rejected him. He was just kind of solitary during this time. Meanwhile, back at home, his father's health was getting worse, and the family was preparing to move from their home on the outskirts of Regent's Park to a place on the outskirts of Hyde Park. And so at this time, his parents decide to pull him out of school. This is a really good place to take a break. When we get back, we'll talk about Wilkie Collins' young adulthood and his path to his illustrious career. Okay, so we're back for Wilkie Collins Phase 2, young adulthood, slash his early career. As a young adult, Wilkie showed some talent in the family profession, painting, but markedly less than his brother Charlie. Like so many of us, he wasn't really sure what profession to go into. This was a bit of a problem, since as the eldest son, his profession was of the utmost importance. His whole family focused on it. England at the time ran on a system called primogeniture, which means the eldest son inherited everything, and basically everything was about this son. Which contributed to make Wilkie a bit full of himself at times. I think it comes out especially later in his life, but even during his boyhood, he thought he was 
the cat's meow, whatever that means. So this was something that was instilled uh, in him by the British system, the British way of running things and his parents alike, but kind of came back to bite him at this point in his life when he really didn't know what he wanted to spend the rest of his time doing. Eventually, he took a job as a clerk in the Strand offices of a tea merchant named Edward Antrobus, and he worked there for five years, so from 1841 to 1846. He started writing during the working hours, and while there, he wrote and published his first work, a short story titled The Last Stagecoachman, which was printed in Illuminated Magazine. He also wrote his first novel, Iolani, a historical romance set in Tahiti before it was, quote, discovered by Europeans. This isn't the first novel he publishes, though. He only publishes it later after he's had some success. After writing Iolani, he began work on a historical novel titled Antonina, which was probably inspired in part by his first long trip abroad with his family. This feat of writing finally convinced his father to let him quit his day job and go to law school. He was called to the bar in 1851, but he never actually practiced law. His novels do reflect his legal training, so it's time well spent, I guess, although his father may have begged to differ. In 1844, his little brother Charlie got accepted to the Royal Academy of Painters, which is like the Harvard of painting, as far as I can tell. While Wilkie himself was still struggling to figure out what to do with his life, he apparently celebrated with a series of drunken parties. Wilkie did, celebrating his brother's success. That doesn't sound quite like celebrating to me, but anyway. And at the same time, he dropped his formal first name, William, and started going by Wilkie Collins, and he'd be known simply as Wilkie for the rest of his life. Also, starting in 1844, when he was 20 years old, Wilkie began to travel abroad on his own regularly. He loved it, but he was pretty irresponsible with money, and he wrote very honestly to his mother that he and his friends were, quote, dissipating fearfully. Gardens, theaters, and cafes being the conglomerate parts of the Parisian paradise we are most inhabiting. It's unclear whether there was more to their dissipation, whether they were gambling or visiting ladies of ill repute or whatnot. Throughout his travels, he wrote dutifully and extensively to his mother, these letters were also peppered with requests for more funds. So this went on for several years, so working at the, at the tea merchants, the travels, the, the writing in his spare time, and sometimes during work hours, until on February 17th, 1847, Wilkie's father died at the age of 58. Even though William Sr. had inherited his own father's debts, he managed to leave his wife a respectable sum of money, 11,000 pounds which according to my Google calculations, was equivalent to about 1,140,895 US dollars in the year 2017. So, hefty sum. Um, of this, she received 700 pounds a year, which is about $72,602 in current US money. To honor his father, Wilkie stopped work on Antonina and began writing his father's biography, Memoirs of the Life of William Collins, Esquire, R.A. This appeared in two volumes in 1848 and was his first published book. There was a little bit of a scuffle at first about whether it would get published or not because the publishers weren't sure it would succeed and so his mother had to actually pay for a few hundred pounds to make sure the publishers would actually put it out but it turned out to be a moderate success. Um, in that same year, Wilkie helped his mother move to a smaller house in Blandford Square, which eventually became a major hub 
of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood movement because Charlie and Harriet herself were pretty involved with many of the people in that movement. If you're not familiar with the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, you can Google Dante Gabriel Rossetti to get a really good idea of what that school of painting looked like. Harriet seems to have become increasingly indulgent of her sons after the death of her husband. She let them bring friends home and held informal dinner parties for them where they smoked in her presence. Now, if you're not familiar with Victorian dinner party etiquette, for most of the century, it was considered proper for the sexes to split up after dinner. So the men would go have their cigars, and the woman would retire to continue chatting in another room. So the fact that she's with them while they're smoking is just scandalous on so many levels. Uh, these young men staged amateur plays, which really just reminds me of the play that the rich kids in Mansfield Park put on, and Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, but seems to have been much more accepted and productive, as we'll see later. And finally, after several years of working on it, on February 28, 1850, Antonina was published, and it received excellent reviews. Wilkie was convinced that he should, in fact, be a writer. But interestingly, he never wrote another strictly historical novel in his life. In the summer of 1850, he wrote a travel book with a friend. It's titled Rambles Beyond Railways and came out in 1851, published by Bentley's, as was Antonina, in fact. Rambles Beyond Railways is based on a journey through Cornwall on foot with his friend Harry Brandling, who supplied the illustrations. Wilkie Collins was a very prolific writer, and I'm not going to take time to mention every publication and explain what it was, but I will attach a list of his works that is sorted by date so you can explore, and I'll mention the most notable ones as we go on. In 1851, when Wilkie was 27 years old, one of the most significant events of his life occurred. He met Charles Dickens, who was middle-aged at 39 and already the best-known writer in the country and probably the world. Nothing would ever be the same again. So how did they meet? Remember those plays I mentioned earlier? Well, Wilkie Collins and his friend Edward Ward began putting on plays together around this time, more formally, I guess. And it was this hobby, which became a lifelong thing for Wilkie and Dickens, that brought the two together. A mutual friend, Augustus Egg, whose name I adore, Augustus Egg, I just, I don't know. I like the last name Egg. Anyway, so Augustus Egg knew both Dickens and Wilkie, and he knew that Dickens was looking for another actor for his performance of Bulwer-Lytton's Not So Bad As We Seem. Dickens asked Egg to ask Wilkie if he wanted the part, and of course, Wilkie did. Opening night, May 16th, 1851, the cast performed for Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Dickens and Wilkie were practically inseparable from this time on, and these early incidents eventually allowed Wilkie to try his hand at playwriting. Later, he wrote The Lighthouse, and Dickens staged it. Thomas Carlyle, who attended on opening night, gave it, and Dickens' performance in it, rave reviews, but it took two more years before the play was staged professionally at the Olympic Theater. Probably inspired by his relationship with the most successful, best-known writer of the Victorian period, Wilkie began upping his writing output significantly at this time. He was submitting more frequently to periodicals such as Bentley's Miscellany, and really just writing anything and everything he could. From this time on, Wilkie can be easily and accurately characterized as a workaholic, and I think this may have contributed to his death. But 
we've still got a long way to go before we get to that. This period of Wilkie's life really centers around acting and writing plays with Dickens. Writing for whatever venues he could, so newspapers, magazines, whatever, and engaging in a press war on behalf of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood with whom Charlie was associated. So people really did not like the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood when they started showing their paintings and making themselves known. Their name smacked of uh, secret societies and maybe Catholic ceremonialism, and the English were really rabidly anti-Catholic at this point in time. It took a while for them to be accepted. They weren't around that long anyway, but Wilkie and his friend Dickens made sure to stick up for them in the press whenever they were maligned. At this time also, Wilkie began to be interested in mesmerism, so this sort of Victorian understanding of hypnotism, which is really associated with Eastern mysticism in ways that a modern reader would find pretty offensive, um, but also was kind of on the cutting edge of what we would now call fringe science. So it seemed like this way of thinking about the human mind and how it affected the body that was new and powerful. And Wilkie Collins was really interested in the new cutting edge science and spiritualism that emerged throughout the century. So as I said, his, his publishing is really upped at this point. He's putting out lots of short stories, both in Dickens' household words and other periodicals, but he still hasn't made his big break. That comes in 1860 when he publishes The Woman in White. This is the novel he is most famous for, hands down. Okay, so admittedly, Basil, which was published in the, in the mid-50s, really helped cement his status as a notable writer of the day. But I think it's not until 1860 when he publishes The Woman in White that he, his, his fame really starts to skyrocket. Interestingly, this coincides with a really important personal event. It's around this time that Wilkie Collins meets 26-year-old Caroline Graves, the first and most enduring romantic relationship he has. So Caroline's gonna be sticking around from here on out. And True to his own form, Wilkie has an interesting origin story for how he met her. But first, a few fast facts about Caroline Gray. She wasn't really called Caroline. She was born in 1829 and her first name was Elizabeth, but she thought Caroline made her sound more genteel, so she adopted that name. She told some stories about her own origins, which are close but not quite the truth. So she described her father as a gentleman, sometimes as an army captain, named John Courtenay. Uh, in fact, his name was John Compton, and he was a carpenter. Also, this is something she was very insecure about throughout her life. She was illegitimate, born two weeks before her parents married. So the myth, or, uh, yeah, the myth surrounding Wilkie's first meeting of Caroline is fun to hear, but probably not true. But I'll just tell you anyway. So one night, Wilkie... His little brother Charlie and the painter Malay are walking back to Wilkie's mother's house in Hanover Terrace and suddenly there's a scream from a garden nearby. A gate nearby is flung open. A beautiful woman in distress comes running through in white robes that shone in the moonlight. She ran off uh, into where, where there wasn't any light anymore so they couldn't really see her and Wilkie ran after her saying he needed to see what to do to help. So yeah the next day Wilkie told them that the woman in distress had been 
kept captive by a villain who had been controlling her with mesmerism and keeping her a prisoner, and he'd helped her escape. Lots of people think that Caroline Graves may have been the inspiration for The Woman in White, which starts with a strikingly similar incident when the mentally infirm Anne Catherick escapes the asylum and encounters Walter Hartwright at night in a white dress. But this seems like an overly romanticized version of a meeting that was probably much more mundane. After The Woman in White comes out, Wilkie Collins gets more and more prolific and he's just churning out stories and newspaper articles and everything he can imagine. He signs on to work for Household Words. Some scholars say to to save Dickens some money because he's paying him so much and he won't have to pay him as a contributor if he's just kind of on staff. But whatever the case, this seemed to be a good working relationship for both men for at least a little while. His heavy-duty work schedule is sort of interspersed with moments or, or periods of ill health or injury, socialization in which he spent time with friends or family or traveled or at one point helped Dickens recover from the pain of realizing that he'd effed up his own marriage by having an affair. So he was a good friend, he was a loyal friend, he didn't have overly conceitious morals about relationships outside of marriage because he himself had a mistress and was very happy with that arrangement. But the longer they're together, the more and more Caroline Graves wants to get married to Wilkie, and Wilkie's just having none of it. I don't know if it was something about his parents' marriage or just that he balked at the idea of marriage in general, but he just never wanted to get married. And in fact, he was he was well-read on the topics of women's rights as they emerged in the day and kept up to date on the laws that made marriage easier on women, allowed them to sue for divorce in specialized cases, eventually allowed them to retain their own property after marriage, keep custody of children, and things like that. So Wilkie cared about women, and especially his mother uh, and the other women in his life, but just did not want to get married ever. Couldn't conceive of that being a good thing. Didn't mean he wasn't committed. In fact, his relationship with Caroline Graves was very, very long-lasting. So we've kind of been bouncing back and forth on the edge of the 1860s now in events. So in, in 1859, he started to openly live with Caroline Graves and her eight-year-old daughter, Harriet. They moved in together into a house at 124 Albany Street, which was a lodging house and therefore kind of had a scurvy reputation. They only lived there for about two months and then moved into a nice new place, 2A New Cavendish Street, which was just down the road from where Wilkie was born. In fact, for most of his life, Collins ping-ponged around Marleybone, which is just the rough area in which he grew up as a child. And also, there's a really cool map. I'll see if I can find a digitized version and post it in the show notes so that it just shows where Wilkie Collins' houses were within this area of London. In 1860, Wilkie's brother Charlie started courting Charles Dickens' daughter Katie. Um, It seems to have been a marriage of convenience, but Charlie finally decided that he needed to marry, 
and they just did it. The wedding happened on the July 17th, 1860, just as Wilkie was finishing the woman in white. At this point, Wilkie Collins is 36 years old. He's finally getting really successful. He's kind of settling down with Caroline Graves and trying to be a good surrogate father for Harriet. He makes sure to send her to a good school. And she was devoted to him throughout her life. Uh, acted as his amanuensis, or uh, he, she wrote for him when he was unable to write for himself. She took dictation and nursed him to health when she was older. So he must have been a loving step-parent, as it were. He wouldn't have his own children until he was in his 40s, but this would not be with Caroline Graves. It would be with his second mistress, Martha Rudd. So Wilkie had three children with Martha. The first, Marion Dawson, was born on the 4th of July in 1869. The second, Constance Harriet Dawson, was born in 1871. And the third, William Charles Dawson, was born in 1874. Dawson was a name that they took to sort of disguise their the status of their relationship. It's actually drawn from the doctor's name in The Woman in White. So he bestows this name on Martha. She goes by Martha Dawson. Her children are legally named Dawson. And the, the kind of family, when it's together, goes by Mr. and Mrs. Dawson and children. For a time, Wilkie was paying the expenses of Caroline Graves and Harriet at one house, of Martha Rudd and the children at another, and of himself at a third. And maintaining both relationships, the women knew about each other. Caroline was understandably hurt and actually left and married someone else for a while, and then came back after her marriage ended. It was a brief marriage. So let's see. Seems like in 1868, she left Wilkie. And on October 29th of that year, she married Joseph Charles Clow, the son of a distiller's agent, who was 23. She was 37 and possibly just agreed to marry him to, to shake Wilkie up and get him to marry her. But that clearly didn't work and she went through with it and... Um, we'll get back to that when, chronologically, when it comes up that she leaves. So I'll let you know when she is back in Wilkie's life, but for now, excellent Caroline Graves pursued by a bear. Anyway, so before all of this mistress kerfuffle happened, when he was just still kind of happily with Caroline Graves and uh, living with Martha Rudd occasionally, but had not yet had any children, the second most popular of his novels came out. It's called The Moonstone, and it was published in... 1868 and is about the theft of a world-famous diamond called the Moonstone and uh, the process by which it's discovered and people's reputations are restored and everything is put back to right. And it's quite a compelling read. Both uh, The Woman in White and The Moonstone are amazing and there are numerous adaptations of them on film and you can probably find them on audiobook. In fact, I know LibriVox has both of them. And if you like the mystery genre at all, these are the novels that gave Wilkie Collins a title of father of detective fiction. Although I believe that crown has since been passed to Edgar Allan Poe. Anyway, moving on. So it's been a bit since we've heard about uh, Harriet Collins, Wilkie's mother, but this is when she kind of comes back into the picture. I mean, she's been there all along, and Wilkie is a dutiful son and visits her often and loves her dearly, but she is 
pretty much PO'd about his life choices and hates his mistress. And actually, pretty much everyone in Wilkie's life hates his mistresses. Uh, Dickens hates Caroline anyway, and uh, some of his friends are more accepting than others. Mostly the ones who can't cast any stones if you take my drift. But so... Harriet's been getting increasingly eccentric over the years, but is pretty much in good health. And she moves around a little bit, especially after Charlie gets married. It sounds like she has a little bit of empty nest syndrome and tries to find families to move in with and help because she feels useless, I think. But her sons insist on her living on her own, thinking it's about her own comfort and a sense of propriety. And eventually she kind of moves out of London a little bit and into a smaller place where maybe she doesn't feel like an immense house is empty around her. Anyway, it seems like her last years were happy, if a bit kooky. But on March 19th, 1868, Harriet Collins died. And unfortunately, Wilkie Collins was deep in a bout of pain and suffering caused by his gout of the eyes or maybe by rheumatoid arthritis, or maybe, as some note, venereal disease that he picked up in his wild oat days as a young man touring the continent. Whatever the case, it was part of his chronic illness, and he was too sick to travel, didn't make it before she died, and also could not attend her funeral on the 25th of March because he was still too ill. This is something that I think haunted him for the rest of his life. So it's just after that that Caroline marries someone else, and then just a year after that that Wilkie has his firstborn daughter. So after his mother's death, he doesn't really have anyone who he has to feel guilty about ruining his reputation for, I guess, or he doesn't have anyone to protect from the wilder side of his ways. So he starts to live openly with Martha Rudd and the children, and seems to have a pretty happy time of it. Um, he's still working constantly, he's still suffering from his gout or chronic, uh, his chronic illness anyway, um, whatever that might have really been. And this goes on for many years, although it's punctuated by a few sad occurrences. The first is the death of Charles Dickens on June 9th of 1870. They've been friends for about 20 years, but they've been on the outs for the last year for a number of reasons. So one, Collins wanted the copyright for the things that he published in Household Words, and I think that offended Dickens a little bit because it's kind of a matter of trust. Dickens was also mad because Wilkie's brother Charlie was having a bit of a financial struggle because he'd tied up a lot of his money in stocks and bonds, I guess, and it's not like he had lost it, but he just couldn't access it. And Katie was not having the life that she deserved, Katie Dickens' daughter, and so as as Charlie's brother, it was Wilkie's responsibility to take care of that, theoretically, and Dickens kind of held it against him when he didn't. And then finally, the novel that Char uh, Charles Dickens was working on before he died, and never in fact completed, titled Edwin Drood, became sort of a sticking point bef between the friends. This novel was written in Wilkie Collins' style. It's a style he invented, a style that's existed only because of him, and I guess Wilkie thought that Man, Dickens, you're the most famous writer in England and probably the world. You've got your hands in all the pies. Why can't you leave me this one thing that's just mine? But I wonder, I wonder if that's how Dickens thought about it. And I think maybe, maybe it wasn't. And I'm just wildly speculating here. So I apologize for that if it's not your 
cup of tea, but it just makes me think that no matter how long you're friends with someone, you can never really assume that you understand them. So, you know, they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and maybe this successful, amazing writer, Dickens, was conceding to the fact that his friend was just as good as him by trying to write something in his style. Maybe he's trying to master this form that his beloved friend has created out of a sort of sincere respect and regard for him. Collins didn't think so, so they kind of split over it, and uh, there's really no evidence that that's really the case, but it's, it's interesting to think about, maybe. I mean, what really drove them apart, we'll never know. Dickens, before he died, and after splitting up with his wife, in a fit of depression or anger, burned all of his letters. And so the 300 letters we know that Wilkie probably wrote to Dickens, because Wilkie has at least that many from Dickens in his possession, are gone. So we don't know what was going on between them. We've kind of had to take our clues about what happened from more oblique sources. Okay, so at this point in his life, Wilkie Collins, as I've mentioned many, many times already, his health was going rapidly downhill. Early in his uh, adulthood, he started taking laudanum, which is a mixture of opium and alcohol to treat the pain of the, of the gout or whatever it was. Uh, by this time in his life, he's also taking morphine, hypodermically, and it's not really helping. So he's just increasingly drugged and still increasingly in pain. And it's just not looking good for old Wilkie at this point. So the processes of writing and suffering and fatherhood and just daily life carry on in this way until early 1871 when Caroline Clow, formerly Graves, returns to Wilkie's loving arms after her brief marriage. She starts living in Gloucester Place again as a housekeeper this time. And I mean, she still has or she's once again his mistress, but is listed as a housekeeper instead of as his, as his wife this time. The marriage probably ended in January 1870, and her husband emigrated to Australia shortly thereafter. But both she and Harriet are now back in Wilkie's life, so he's got two families now. He's paying for both of these families and working harder and harder to, to do all of that. And... Things continue in a fairly happy state, although there were domestic squabbles and bumps in the road, as with any life, um, until he's about 50 years old, when his brother Charlie dies on April 9th, 1873. He's 45 years old, which sounds really young to us, but was in fact the average lifespan of a 19th century man. In the aftermath of all of these deaths, and others that I don't have time to go into or mention here, Wilkie is clearly thinking about his own mortality, and he begins working and reworking his will. I think he updates it regularly from this point on, but he sets it up so that his estate will be divided equally between Caroline Graves and Harriet, her daughter, on the one hand, and Martha Rudd and their three children, on the other hand. And he's very particular. So every time he has a new child, he updates the will to reflect that. He does everything he can to make sure that this will will not be contested and that both of the loves of his life will get the money that he feels they deserve. He has spent his life writing about 
where the legal system fails and the scandals of society and the hardship that often brings to women. And so he tries very hard to make sure none of that happens to Caroline and Martha. In happier news, a trip he's been talking about making for a lot of his professional life finally comes to fruition. So successful British writers would often take a tour of the U.S. and they would read their work and they would see the sights and they would travel into the West and experience life there. And Dickens had done it very successfully not too long ago. So Collins finally decides that it's time for him to do that. And in 1874, he does. He goes to New York, Detroit, Chicago, the Wild West. Not necessarily in that order. He visits Niagara Falls. He does some reading. He's not quite of uh, quite as much of a workhorse while he's traveling as Dickens, though, and so he doesn't really make the same bank that Dickens did. But overall, the experience was successful. He didn't seem to be very impressed with the Americas. He particularly did not like Chicago. He recounts having a touch of rheumatism while at Niagara Falls, but overall feeling very well. And he shows particular fascination with the Mormons who are starting to gain increasing notoriety in the U.S. at the time. So he's fascinated by the concept of polygamy because that's what he's been doing, just not in a legal way, which the, the Mormons were trying to instate in their own communities. I think he found hope in, in, the, in the possibility that, at some, that someday, maybe not in his lifetime, but someday it would be considered a legitimate way of living. After his trip, he returns to life as usual, a couple more moves. Wilkie and his family move so many times throughout their lives. He also starts to fight more and more with publishers and predicts that, quote, a very few years more will see a revolution in the publishing trade for which most of the publishers are unprepared. I don't believe in the gigantic monopolies which cripple free trade, lasting much longer. The Moody Monopoly and the W.H. Smith Monopoly are anomalies in a commercial country, end quote. And actually, Wilkie was right. So the Moody Monopoly he talks about as Moody's Circulating Library, which actually, for a lot of the century, controlled which books did well and which did not, because books were really expensive, and so people wouldn't necessarily buy them for themselves. They would subscribe to a library, and for a fraction of the price books cost, or for the price of one book, have access to many, many books. And Moody's was very selective about who they included, and because they were so selective, but because they were also the main circulating library among the upper middle classes, they really became tastemakers and determined what could sell and what could not. And in fact, started to dictate to the publishers what they could buy. Uh, but by the end of the century, that system kind of crashed and writers like Marie Corelli became the first modern bestsellers by writing books that appealed to popular interests and tastes and really disregarded Moody's conservative stipulations of what counted as, quote, good literature. But toward the end of the 1870s, Wilkie's health was failing enough that it was starting to affect his work. He kept up with his work, but it was more and more of a struggle for him to keep up with his fast publishing schedules, and do all of the things he needed to do in a day. Caroline Graves really stepped up at this time and became his caretaker, 
and really solidified her position as one of the most important women in his life. Meanwhile, Martha was raising his children, so really couldn't take care of him and do that. And as the 70s gave way to the 80s, Collins was really feeling his age. So there's really no easy transition here, but because Collins kept, well, he kept working basically up to his death. But we've covered the bulk of his life, we've covered his major romances, we've covered his major publication feats, although uh, we have not even dented really the whole body of his work. Now it's time to take one last break, and when I come back, I will tell you about Wilkie Collins' death and his legacy. On June 30th, 1889, Wilkie Collins had a stroke. It left his left side paralyzed, and for a while people thought maybe his brain was affected too. That doesn't seem to be the case. But his all-but-adopted daughter, Harriet, wrote to Mary Elizabeth Braddon that, quote, It is a terrible shock to see such a wonderful genius struck down in an instant, asking Braddon not to tell anyone of the troubling news. A few months pass, then the state of things doesn't really change. He gets better, slowly, but on the 21st of September, he sends a note to his doctor and friend, Frank Beard. It reads, quote, I am dying, old friend. They are driving me mad by forbidding the high, dash. Come for God's sake, I am too wretched to write. The partially obscured word is probably hypodermic needle, um... So just a reference to the medicine that he is addicted to at this point. Dr. Frank comes and administers it, but it's not, it's really just kind of just to ease his pain and help aid his passing because on the 23rd of September, 1889, Wilkie Collins dies at the age of 65. In another letter, this time to Collins' friend Frank Archer, Harriet writes, quote, My news is so sad. I couldn't write to you before it has all been so miserable. Our dear one left us at 10.35 yesterday morning. We are so sad. He died so peacefully and so quietly, and his face is beautiful with such a calm expression. Poor dear Wilkie. Nina Lehman, one of Colin's uh, lifelong friends, writes, quote, And so our poor dear genial, delightful, matchless old Wilkie has gone. It made me very sad, but he could never have enjoyed life again, even if he had recovered. Wilkie was almost the very last link left that bound us to the glory of departed days. Dickens, Lytton, Hooten, Wilkie, Charlie Collins, it seems like a former life, not on this earth at all. Wilkie was buried at Kensal Green Cemetery on September 22, 1889. He asked for a simple ceremony telling people not to spend more than 25 pounds, and his wishes were honored. So it is really with his legacy that a splendid memorial lies. Wilkie Collins was a man, at turns, confident in himself and so insecure that he grew a beard to make his face look more symmetrical. In his lifetime, he published 23 novels, six collections of short fiction, one collection of essays, a travel book, and his father's biography. He also published 
a bunch of short stories which were not ever bound in book form during his life anyway. Translated one work from French, wrote more than a dozen plays, some which were adapted from his other work, and some which he adapted into novels, including one of my favorites, Jezebel's Daughter, and wrote more than a hundred articles in periodicals. His last novel was not completed before his death. Instead, Walter Besant, another major Victorian writer of the period, finished it and published it posthumously, and I guess kind of passed out of popular knowledge until 1989 when it was rediscovered. But not all of his work has been identified because Victorians, especially in news writing, had a penchant for writing anonymously. But more than the sum or, or the, yeah, the, the number of books and texts he wrote, Wilkie Collins invented a genre. He's called the father of sensation fiction. And sensation is, it kind of draws on earlier genres like the gothic, but pulls those elements into a distinctly middle-class domestic scene. And it deals with things that would have been considered sensational or scandalous to the Victorians, like bigamy and double identities, and murder, and thinks about the abnormality and the, and the difference and the sensation bubbling under the surface of seemingly normal, everyday British life. This influenced and led to developments in detective fiction, and I think also kind of led to some of our popular genres today, like urban fantasy, in interesting ways. It was a real predecessor to that. So Wilkie Collins is called The King or The Father of Sensation Fiction, and that title is undoubtedly and rightfully his. After the ball, done by Mr. If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, head on over to the Victorian Scribblers Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. That's www.patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. There you can find all the latest updates about the podcast, most recent episodes, exclusive content, and links to all of the social media pages. You can also drop me a line at Victorian Scribblers at Outlook.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you. Bye. Music for this podcast, courtesy of MuseOpen, www.museopen.org.